uh, like I'm not the best undercover agent ever out there. I, like I can name dozens of guys who I have immense respect for, who I believe are better at the job than I was. The thing that I had going for me is that I was always willing. I was always willing to try. Um, I wasn't uh, intimidated or afraid of what seemed to be either impossible or too dangerous. I always raised my hands for those assignments. I was more worried about how I would look at myself if I didn't try versus if I tried and failed. Hey guys, if you missed out on the last conference in Nashville, Tennessee, you don't want to miss out on the next one. It's April 28th through May 3rd, Orlando, Florida, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. You made a mistake missing the last one. You don't want that to happen again on this one. Five days of some of the best training you're ever going to experience packed into one event. We have an early bird special right now, $50 off. Use 24 early bird on our website, streetcop.com. Look for the conference, click the link, register today. If you want to get significantly better at this profession in five days, don't dare miss out on the 2024 Street Cop Conference. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino, and today I have with us somebody that a lot of people will know. Actually, somebody was requested to speak at our conference on several occasions, and the reality is he's speaking at our fucking conference, and it's going to be new calendars getting released. By the time this gets aired, the calendar will be out, along with the availability of Street Cup University. But yes, today we have with us Jay Dobbins. Jay is so funny because your Wikipedia has what day you were born. Born July 24th, 1964. He's a retired special agent, veteran undercover operative with the United States Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives. New York Times bestseller, author, public speaker, which you'll see him publicly speak. The Street Cop Conference 2024, April 28th to May 3rd, Orlando, Florida, Gaylord, Toms, and high school football coach, Jay Anthony Dobbins. Right on, man. Thanks for having me. Welcome to your audience. This is great, man. I'm glad you uh, made it here today. Jay and I were talking a little bit before we got on. Like, what are we going to talk about? Last time we got on the phone, we talked for like an hour. First time we met. So I just like, yeah, let's just do that again. Yep, I'll follow your lead, man. Take it where you want to go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that people, essentially, even me, I mean, by the time when you went on the job, I was, I was six. And I'm an old guy in the fucking profession now. Yeah, you know, and I had those guys too. I had those older guys that uh, mentored me and guided me and uh, learned from their successes and their mistakes and, and the lessons learned of their experiences. And that, that's, that, that, that's part of the game is when you get it right, try to repeat it. When you get it wrong, try not to do that again. How do you feel at 62 physically? I feel good physically. I, I'm active. I, I get to the gym and work out five days a week. I'm, I'm not what I was 20 years ago by any means. Um, but like I fight back. I, I see people my age who, who've given up, who've just said it's not, it's not worth trying anymore. I can't get any results. I can't make progress. Um, I'm just going to not do anything. Man, I don't want to give up on myself. No, and you shouldn't. I mean, I got to tell you, I don't think anybody in their right mind would ever guess that you're 62. Is that correct? 
well, you know what? Like I go to the gym and like, man, there's days when it's just humiliating to be in the gym because you know what you were. Um, and, and my mind wants to do certain things that it, I, my body just can't keep up with anymore. Um, that's the cost of doing business, I guess. You know, I put a lot of, a lot of battle damage on myself. And so I'm paying the price for some of that. But uh, just, just trying to stay in the game. Just trying to like, like keep it well and good for as long as I can. You're uh, you're on to it there. And so, you know, you do the ATF thing. You're best known for your infiltration of the Hells Angels, correct? Yeah, you know what? That's probably the case that got the most notoriety, um, the most publicity. Um, I, it, it wasn't uh, my best investigation or, or the one that I'm most uh, proud of, but it's the one that, uh, you know, that people talk about and, and maybe not even so much what I did. But it was who the the case was uh, targeted. You know, the Hell's Angels—they're mythical, man. They're Americana. Um, if if you would have taken that story and plugged it into any other uh, crime element, I'm not sure it would be as interesting. But it's the Hell's Angels, and so it catches people's attention. What do you think attracts people to join an association like the Hell's Angels? I should probably ask Mel this stuff, but what do you I think, think I, answer, yeah i think I, I think my answer would probably be something very close to what mel's answer would be which is they want a sense of brotherhood they want a sense of family they want to belong to something uh and and if you're uh, a part of that culture and if you're interested in that lifestyle then there's no higher calling than being a hell's angel that they're the king of the mountain they always have been they always will be other people are chasing them other people are threatened by them or insecure about them, but the Hell's Angels are very secure in who they are and where they rank in the hierarchy, which is at the top, and they intend to stay there. How do these other motorcycle organizations like come about, you know, in, in, in opposition to the Hell's Angels? Like right now, I'm seeing every week, I don't know what has happened, but there's a convenience store near my house that I drive past because I go to one part of one town. And I, I got to tell you, almost every single time I pass there, maybe it's the time they meet because I go to the same place every day. There's probably 30, 40 pagans in the parking lot there. Now, dude, I've gotten gas there. I've walked up. I've chatted up with those guys. What are some of the differences between them and the Hells Angels? Why did they spawn? Well, you know, the, the Hells Angels and, and the biker culture are truly America's organized crime syndicate export to the world. Mafias come to the United States to make money because of our, uh, our, our, our infrastructure and our economy and the money to be made in the crime world. But uh, the Hells Angels are led by the Hells Angels. America has exported that element of organized crime to the rest of the world where it's everywhere. It's on, you know, the, uh, outlaw bikers are on every continent. Uh, one of the Hells Angels favorite sayings is that the sun never sets on a Hells Angels patch. They're everywhere. Thousands of members, hundreds of charters uh, across the planet. That's interesting. You know, earlier you said this case of your infiltration of the Hells Angels was not your best case, but it was one that achieved the most notoriety. What was your best case? Oh, probably the one that I think had the most impact, that was the most significant, was uh, me and a partner um, were part of a small task force in Las Vegas immediately following the Oklahoma City bombing. And we actually infiltrated a scheme that was intending to blow up three Las Vegas casinos. 
the Golden Nugget, the Mirage, and the Treasure Island. And and it wasn't street talk. This wasn't just uh, some dude popping off. We actually ended up uh, reversing uh, the suspects uh, with some C4 remote-controlled IEDs. Um, and they had every intention to implode those casinos. Um, now, on the heels of Oklahoma City and the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building, you know, there there were potentially, if I had a crystal ball, potentially thousands of lives saved by that case. So that, that's, that, that's an important case. That was an important event um, in my career and, and an important event in uh, crime and justice and true crime and, and, and what we try to do as, as lawmen and women. There's no crystal ball for us. There's nothing that says what you do today, the case you work on today, the arrest you make today. There's no predictor on what you're preventing tomorrow. Um, a lot of that is speculative. And sometimes these, these events take place where we don't have to speculate. We see Columbine High School. We see um, the Oklahoma City bombing. And so, you know, was there a step in there somewhere that may have prevented those things? We don't have the crystal ball for that either. Are you allowed to speak of the details of that case and how it came about and the investigation surrounding it? Yeah, yeah of course. The, the the bombing case? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had been working a case that was drawing uh, moderate attention in Las Vegas. Uh, I had been working uh, the militia crowd there out of a gun store. Uh, we had a source that ran a gun, gun store, and I was starting to uh, climb the ladder a little bit, meeting people. Um, figuring out who's who in the zoo. That, that there wasn't a lot of attention on the case. At that exact same time, Timothy McVeigh uh, blows up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Leads from that case, from the Oklahoma City case, come back right to the area where I'm working. Um, he had associates in that area that helped him uh, plan and, and put together his device. So this kind of innocuous a uh, case that no one was really paying close attention to, all of a sudden had a bright spotlight shining on it because we were back in the heart of the militia movement. And one thing led to another. We were, we were, we were meeting people and, and trying to climb the ladder, trying to find out who was responsible for the execution or planning of, of future violent events in this militia world. There were people that were talking about killing federal judges, uh, uh, disrupting power supplies, attacking Hoover Dam, attacking, attacking the Palo Verde nuclear power plant, um, trying to overrun National Guard's units to acquire weapons, all kinds of crazy schemes that were like out there on the streets at that point in time. In that process, we crossed paths with one of the people in this group named Jeffrey Tenpenny. And uh, Tenpenny had a pending case against Steve Wynn's corporation in las vegas steve Wynn like was a uh casino resort mogul in vegas uh tenpenny had a lawsuit against him for an injury that he received on one of Wynn's properties the lawsuit didn't pan out for him and he decided that he was going to get his vengeance he was going to get his retaliation and not only blow up Wynn's casinos but he also hired us to assassinate the corporate attorney that handled 
his his legal dispute. Um, and like this dude was wicked. Now he he uh, was telling people telling us in, in our undercover role he didn't care how many people died. He was set on doing this. He didn't care if young people or babies or grandparents were going to go down in this explosion. He uh, when he ordered us to murder the attorney, or or solicited us to order the attorney to murder the attorney, he didn't want us to just kill her. He had detailed plans. I I know where she, she takes her kids to school. I want you to confront her on her sidewalk, out outside her face, uh, outside of her home. I want you to throw acid in her face before you shoot her in front of her kids. That was the kind of guy that we were dealing with. Um, ultimately, through negotiations, we meet him, and the guy has got the blueprints, the blue lines, the mechanical drawings for the casinos. We walk through the Treasure Island with him, and he's telling us exactly where he wants to place the charges to create the most damage on, on load-bearing walls. And, and like he had it figured out. So we had some devices built. Um, through through our explosive technology unit um, that were that were C4. That's what he wanted. That's what he ordered. They were remote control devices that were servo activated, and uh, we sold him those devices. He reconfirmed what his intent for them was, and then we we took them down. So there was a huge amount of uh, of uh, I don't know what word I want to use satisfaction in knowing that we had had a hand in disrupting that scheme. What happened at Tenpenny? He was convicted, um, not nearly the lick that you would think he would take for something like that. And especially with all that electronic evidence and testimony um, that we were able to present to a judge and a jury, I think he got seven or eight years for uh, possession of a uh, illegal explosive device. We'd also bought some narcotics from him and some sawed off shotguns from him during this process. So those were part of his lick. But um, for someone that's planning something that catastrophic to look at a seven or eight year prison sentence, you know, don't try to apply logic or reason or common sense to it because they don't always tie together. You'd think that he would have gotten more. Where was the failure in the legal system for that? You know what? I don't know that there was a failure. We prosecuted the case and the statutes that were applied. Those were the sentencing guidelines that were part of those statutes. So uh, you look at the scope and his intent and you feel we feel like as citizens, as part of society, that there was a bigger price to pay. But the legal system dictates how that works. It, like prosecutors and agents and investigators, we don't attach uh, the sentencing guidelines to a statute. The courts do. The, the the judiciary does, the legislature does. You know, did this incident, this arrest, did it gain really no media attention at all? I mean, first time I've ever heard of something uh, of this story. And again, I don't know what year it was, so I may have been very, very young, but it doesn't ring a bell. And, and in comparison to, I remember the first uh, bombing attempt at the World Trade Center, I recall that as a kid, because actually the bomb was detonated. But, you know, a was there any media attention behind it? Is there a story behind it? Well, yes and no. Uh, initially, uh, this took place in 1995. So initially, there wasn't a lot of media attention. And, and I thought, like, man, this is a pretty important story. And the media in Las Vegas, um, their position was, man, like, this town is built on tourism. 
we are not going to put on the front page of some knucklehead intending to blow up our casinos and murder and kill innocent people. It got buried like on a Section C uh, portion of the Las Vegas newspaper. But it's interesting you ask because um, I just did an interview. My partners and myself just did an interview uh, recently for the A&E Network, and they're going to publish a uh, an episode as part of a new uh, crime series that they're putting out. I think it'll air in January or February, which tells that story in detail with all the surveillance video and the and the dirty conversations with this suspect. And and, and it, they, they did a really nice job of, of capturing that story, which will actually be publicized probably for the first time um, when it when it airs on A&E Network. Does it make you feel frustrated that something like that didn't get as much attention as something as comparable to the infiltration of the Hells Angels? No, you know, what? And, and Dennis, you know this, there's not a cop that I ever met that took a badge or a gun that was looking for publicity or looking to do anything that like was of exceptional note or notoriety or made it into the papers or made it into a book or made it into a movie. Like we don't take our jobs for those reasons. Sometimes we end up participating in events that warrant that, but that's never the goal. So if you work a case and if you work an amazing case or an important case or something of significance that doesn't draw notoriety, it makes it no less significant or no less important. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think people need to stop being so frustrated with a lot of stuff in their lives and Sometimes you got to accept things for the way they are in the world and worry about yourself and the things you can do for the world. It's a really good well, piece if, of advice. If you take this job uh, for the attention and for the accolade, you've taken it for the wrong reason. And, and, and I don't know any cops that fit that mold. I've never met a cop um, that, that whose primary mission was to uh, gain personal notoriety for their, for their work or for their accomplishments. Sometimes that happens, but many, many times, many more times than get publicized, don't get publicized. An amazing investigation, an amazing work takes place that we as the public never know about, never see, never hear about. It reminds me of a story that, again, I never did work for recognition, and it'd be so interesting who got recognition and why. This is a very common theme in law enforcement, but I had a night where I had stopped the vehicle, obviously pretextual, and you just never know what you're going to get with that. To make a long story short, I caught a dude who had, I had to really dig apart his story, but essentially what he did was he was 18 or 19, and he had a friend from his town. She was like 15. Friends, right? It's, it's normal to be a high school kid, maybe 18, senior in high school or something like that, but you know, you're an adult. Legally, you're not just a kid anymore. You're technically an adult now. But she was running away. So he assisted her with getting to Newark Airport and was going to fly out to like Kentucky to meet a guy that she'd met online. This is a problem because I had to immediately act and try to get her off that plane. To And so I had to stop, calm him down because he was a wreck over because he knew he did something wrong. And so essentially, make a long story short, I had they actually boarded the plane, walked her off, returned her home. The agency of where it occurred, they essentially ended up charging this kid for child endangerment or some shit like that. Nothing, you know, I don't think he went to prison or anything like that. But 
later that night, I happened to see a car that I that was uh, on a road that I worked, busy road, one lane, both directions. The dude literally punches it, comes down this 25-mile-an-hour road, doing like 90, passing cars, opposite direction, almost causes crashes. I think it's a hot car. I start trying to catch up to him. I, 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 I get him down. I get him to a bowling uh, like I try to get to them so fast that I put my I had my lights on, so it's very hard for me to be covert about it. So I had to push traffic to fight, catch up to this guy. Again, I thought it was like maybe a carjacked car. I wasn't essentially going for the ticket here, but this was one where your pal uh, Dennis Benino was going to write a ticket. There's no question about it. And as I'm stopping, I'm trying to get the plate in at the same time to make sure it's not hot. Like I can't get it in fast enough on my MDT. And I literally bumped the back of his car as I was stopping the car because he like abruptly stopped and I just nudged it. No damage, no nothing, but it's on camera. And I said, I have to get somebody out here to do a report on this, that the whole nine. I think a day or two later, I had gone into work and I was met by internal affairs who had a letter of reprimand for me from the same day for bumping the back of that car with no damage. And I said, did you guys see that I also stopped a kid who was about to be raped in Kentucky, like three hours before that. And he looked at me, I, good guy, uh, friends with his son. He's a good guy. He just took this, this gig because he got promoted. And he was leaving soon. He did a year in internal affairs. Good dude. He's like, hey, don't shoot the messenger. I go, well, I have something for the messenger. Why don't you bring this back upstairs? You wonder why nobody likes working here? Because this is what you guys fucking do. And at that time, I was very frustrated. And I, you know, Probably wasn't a real wise idea for me to do that, but I was so hot at the moment of like, how ridiculous is this? Like, you couldn't just over, you know, like make it an oversight that like this happened, there was no damage, no big deal. Now you got to fucking do this stupid thing because you have progressive discipline, and we're just ignoring all the good shit that I did that day for this one little this one little hiccup. Ridiculous. Well, I think that happens every day in society today with the the view of police. Um, an event, a questionable event takes place, a bad event takes place. And, you know, society and culture focuses on that and, and critiques that and, and second guesses it and Monday morning quarterbacks it. I get all that. But every one of those events, there's tens of thousands of police contacts that are equally as dangerous, equally as violent, equally as treacherous that get resolved peacefully or get resolved uh, without a critical event, we 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 ignore those as society, you know. And talking about like not having a crystal ball and and referencing like our Oklahoma City bombing investigation, what happens if some patrolman happened to pull over Timothy McVeigh's rider truck, peeks inside, says, "Hey, man, this guy's got some some uh, crazy uh, stuff going on back here, man. It looks like he's got this thing wired up to blow," and arrest Timothy McVeigh. There's no crystal ball that that the Oklahoma City bombing doesn't take place. And no one's going to pay attention to that. No one's going to care. It's just going to be some traffic stop. Some guy caught a, uh, a truck bomb and it might get a little attention. But but that's not why we do what we do. Whatever happened or where is Tenpenny now? You know what? That's a good question. Um, hopefully he's got his life straightened out. Hopefully he, he, he learned from his mistakes and the incarceration served its purpose and that he's changed his, his tone and straightened himself out and is living as a productive member of society. That's the goal. That's the objective of the, of the whole operation. But I couldn't tell you where he is or, or what kind of lifestyle he's living. 
Back to when you infiltrated the Hells Angels, and I hate to be cliche of where it's going to go, but I have some questions that came to mind for me. Uh, once it was discovered that you had infiltrated and, and, you know, I guess arrests were made, typically how it goes, right? The whole operation is kind of like opened up, the truth comes out, got that Donnie Brasco feel to it, same shit, right? Sure. What was it like living through that? And how did you feel about your personal safety? Well, it, it got real crazy for a while. Um, when uh, Jay Davis, the gun runner, debt collector, uh, quasi-contract killer, was revealed through discovery to be Jay Dobbins, the ATF agent, man, the, the, the tiger doesn't change his stripes. These guys are who they are. The Hells Angels have PhDs in violence and intimidation. Um, I was naive or, or would have been naive to think that it wasn't going to come back to me. Uh, murder contracts were issued. They were farmed out to the MS-13, to the Aryan Brotherhood, to 18th Street in Los Angeles. Um, threats against my family, against my wife and my kids. Uh, threats to inject me with the AIDS virus. Like all kinds of craziness was coming out. And so... You know, it's it's it it, it sounds uh, like like false bravado at this point. That's that that's not the intention of my answer, but it's kind of the cost of doing business. If you're going to deal with people like this, that is who they are, and that is how they react. And if you think that that's not coming back on you, or that you're going to hide behind a badge, you're not. Hey guys, follow us on all social media platforms to include Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook group. We have so much information going out every single day and we don't want you to miss out on any of that stuff. So check it out. Go give us a follow. Do you still have concern today looking over your shoulder? I was thinking about what it must be like to be Joe Pistone. We're talking about this recently and you know, what's that like or does that still exist for the rest of your life living like that, feeling like it could be or it could happen when somebody's trying well, to do you know, something? Yeah. You know, Joe Pistone, uh, the, the, the public knows him as Donnie Brasco, is a good friend of mine. And, and Joe is concerned with uh, like, like, like what potentially might, what actions might potentially be taken against him. And he's justified in that. Whether the family that he infiltrated is still active or still on the hunt for him, like no one wants to call that bluff, right? So Joe like takes some special measures to protect himself as well he should. Your question is like, do I have concern? Yeah, of course I have concern. I know who I'm dealing with, with, with the Hells Angels. I've seen firsthand what they're capable of, of, of the violence and murder and, and assaults and, and the things that they do. I've chosen personally, like not to wear a wig or a plastic nose. Um, I'm not trying to poke the tiger. I'm not trying to infuriate these guys. I'm not doing this interview with you, this podcast. Uh, to try to rub anything in their face. I had a job to do. I did it the best I could. I had days where I succeeded. I had days where I failed. They know that we're out there. It's the cat and mouse game. They do what they do. We do what we do. Um, sometimes they win. Sometimes we win. But if I live in fear, if I go into hiding, if, if I let them alter my life, they want. I, I like I'm 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 not trying to call them out. I'm not trying to embarrass them or humiliate them. I have a story to tell. There's good parts and there's bad parts of that infiltration. I've tried to tell that honestly and with transparency. 
Um, and there's there's people that understand it on the other side. I have acquaintances within the Hell's Angels who've acknowledged that. There's others who are never going to forgive me. They're they're never going to understand that that I was doing a job the best I could do it. But I always had uh, an immense sense of pride in carrying a badge and a gun and standing up on behalf of good and innocent people against the predators in society. That is what we in law enforcement do. And if you can't understand that, or if you don't agree with it, or you don't like it, or, or you um, are uh, against the use of deception in, in the law enforcement as part of a, a lawman's toolbox, then like, I really can't answer that question for you. Recently, I watched a Netflix series called Get Gotti, I think it's called. Yeah, I saw and it literally too. the last thing that that woman who was a mafia associate said was, you got to give it to the cops. They did a really good job. That just is what it is. It's the game we're in. Everybody knew it. The cops did a fantastic job. Everybody knows it. They just did a really, really, really good job at getting John. You know, I had, uh, I've had several like shot callers high-ranking, influential members of the Hells Angels who, who said that, who said, hey, look, man, like, we don't like the guy. We don't like what he did, but he was good at what he did, and he got us. Um, like, like I said, like, there was never any personal objective in it. I never set out to ruin anybody's life. I never set out to make sure that no one ever saw the light of day again. A as an investigator, as an undercover uh, agent, my job was to uh, acquire information and intelligence and evidence. And then I report that out. I deliver that back out to case agents and prosecutors who then figure out how to assemble that case and put it before a judge and a jury. Like my job is to gather information and intelligence. Um, and I did that the best I could. And if they've got a problem with that, I, like I can't help them through that. They're just going to hate because they they want to hate. Have you ever had an opportunity to send this message to them about like it was business, boys? And I guess the second part of that is, have you ever received communication back that it's kind of water under the bridge? You kind of alluded to it a little bit, but has there ever been comfort given to you? Like, hey, uh, you know, there might be some things out now, but like we're it's water under the bridge at this point. Well, you know, there's been some, uh, for lack of better term, satisfaction in the acknowledgement, like I said earlier, from some like influential members who say, look, the guy got us. He was good at what he did. OK, um, I don't know that there's been anybody like like reaching out to rub my shoulders saying, hey, everything's OK now. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, I don't expect that to happen. But it, it, it just it is what it is. And, and, and I did my job the best I could do it. And for the people that hate me for that, um, like I can't and I'm not willing to try to take it back or apologize for it. How were you chosen to do this? Did you volunteer? Did they come to you? How did you adapt? Were you a biker already as a as a cop? I mean, that in a sense of like, was that your hobby? Like, you know, how did this come to fruition? Very much the opposite of that characterization. <laughs> uh, the case agent, uh, a guy named Joe Slatella, uh, who was the case agent in Arizona, 
uh, arguably the best case agent uh, that that I ever worked with, that I ever knew, approached me to lead the undercover infiltration portion. My first reaction was like, dude, I'm not the best choice for this role. I can name 10 guys who are better at this and will serve this role for you better than I think that I can. And he convinced me to try and and to, to, to give it a shot. And I've said many times publicly and privately, um, I, like I'm not the best undercover agent ever out there. I, like I can name dozens of guys who I have immense respect for, who I believe are better at the job than I was. The thing that I had going for me is that I was always willing. I was always willing to try. Um, I wasn't uh, intimidated or afraid of what seemed to be either impossible or too dangerous. I always raised my hands for those assignments. I was more worried about how I would look at myself if I didn't try versus if I tried and failed. And so how does that process go? How do you how do you get introduced? Like what's that what's that look like on the back end from a law enforcement perspective? You're selected. There's got to be some kind of I guess briefing on how things are going to go and how did that all start begin to transpire? Well, you know, when that opportunity came up for me, I already had 15 years of undercover experience um, under my belt. So I'd bought guns big and small, bombs big and small, narcotics big and small. I'd worked on home invasions and murder for hires and other infiltrations. So I was comfortable in my role and I was comfortable with the game. I just wasn't comfortable being a biker. That was never my area of expertise. So it was trial by fire a little bit. You know, I started doing research into who these guys are, what they're about, their history, trying to figure out who's who in the zoo. Uh, the one thing that stuck out to me in that process was that these cats will kill their own. There's a long track record. If they feel betrayed or threatened by their own membership, like they'll assassinate their own people uh, to clean house. And so, like, I always had that in the back of my mind. As I was growing in the role and as I was learning and getting better at it, um, I was like, man, don't never forget whose team you're playing on. These dudes might be leaving you now. These same guys that will step in front of a bullet for you today, if they find out who you are, they're going to drag a straight razor across your throat. It'll happen that quick. So how did you get introduced to now go undercover? And how did that begin? What was that process like? In the field, well, part of uh, the the choice of myself to lead the undercover operation is that I've already had uh, a criminal reputation established in Bullhead City, Arizona, and I'd already started to overlap with members of the Hell's Angels. So when the time came, I wasn't starting from ground zero. These guys had a feel for who Jaybird was. He was this gun runner running around in Bullhead City and doing debt collections. So I didn't have to start from scratch. But then we had the use of some informants who opened some doors, made some introductions. And, you know, that's undercover work. You get your foot in the door. And then, you know, like by design, we, we should be looking to kind of move the informant aside and take control of where the case goes. And so that's what I tried to do. I was trying to climb the ladder and meet as many people as I could I met plenty of Hell's Angels who were not troublemakers, who were not like looking to cave somebody's head in every time they went out 
or sell drugs or commit murders or do rapes or any of these other uh, elements of crime that they may be involved in. Um, I wasn't interested in them. I would meet those people and develop a relationship and try to establish some credibility with them. But I was focused on who was responsible for the violence, who was ordering the violence, who was committing the violence. So when I met those people, those are the ones that drew my attention and my focus. So the nonviolent guys who are part of this, if they're called upon to be violent, would they have to be required to be violent? Like, why would somebody join the Hells Angels? And, you know, essentially, I think in our minds, we always think that everybody is up to no good with these organizations. But, but if they were called upon to be violent, they would have to be violent. Well, you know what? That's part of the membership and part of the brotherhood and part of the, the Hells Angels religion is that uh, like like one of the one of the rules, one of the unwritten rules is that um, if one of your brothers gets in a fight, you better be in that fight to help him. And if you're not, you'll be the next guy getting his ass kicked. So there's people who like weren't necessarily uh, didn't have a, a, a violent uh, disposition about them. But when you pack them up, when they get together in numbers, they feed on each other. And there may, it may only take one or two people with bad intentions to inspire everybody else into, into doing things they maybe normally wouldn't do on their own. But now when you got that patch on your back, when you're wearing that death head, and when you have a top rocker that says Hell's Angels, man, you're in for life. And good or bad, man, you better be, better be ready to get down. Why would some people be committing crimes in this organization and other people not? Why would, what would be, I know that obviously we talk about the brotherhood, the camaraderie, but how do these other people, like it's, if there's such a different personality base between the two types of people in the organization, we'll call it two for the purpose of this conversation. Tell me about that a little bit. It's kind of interesting. Never heard that before. Well, and it's, it, to some extent, that, uh, that theme is how they protect and defend themselves from like complex conspiracy uh, charges from RICO and from CCE. They'll say the umbrella of the Hells Angels, like we all wear the same patch. It's all formatted the same, but we are responsible for ourselves either as individuals or individual charters. So their, their argument is that we may have criminals within our organization but we are not a criminal organization. That is how they defend themselves. Um, but as we know that, you know, uh, complex uh, conspiracy cases, RICO cases, CCE cases, that they don't always work that way. You know what, if, if, if you're part of it, if you've got a hand in it, then, then you can be accountable for the actions of others. Yeah, everybody fears the RICO charge, right? Well, you know what, it's, it's, it's scary. It's a scary charge to look at when that's presented to you, but it's also very difficult to prove. Uh, and it should be, it carries a heavy penalty. Um, we should not be able to smash people with super heavy punishments and not have an equally immense challenge to successfully prosecute those cases. Uh, in, in our system, in our system of justice in America, that's the beauty of it. Like you are allowed to face your accusers you are allowed to see the evidence that's being presented against you and form a defense for it. That not everybody, not every country has that. It's, it's the beauty of living in America. You said that you had some people that were a part of the organization that made introductions 
uh, to other members of the organization on your behalf. And again, a lot of people are familiar with the Donnie Brasco case because of the movie. And so essentially, at the end of the movie, there is steep punishment for the gentleman who had brought Donnie Brasco, a.k.a. Joe Pistone, into the family, and he was essentially murdered. Were there repercussions for the people that made the introductions on your behalf? There were. You know, there, there was dozens of Hells Angels members who embraced Jay Bird Davis um, and, and, and did business with me, did criminal business with me and involved me in their schemes. Uh, there were others who like were more remote. Um, but like if I could win their friendship, if I could gain their trust and gain their loyalty, and then they would speak highly of me to someone else, um, they became unwitting informants. They were they were uh, vouching for me and at times opening doors for me within the organization that I would have never been able to open myself. And so what were the repercussions that they faced after this was discovered that you were an undercover agent? You know, there wasn't anything that I'm aware of that was as extreme as what uh, uh, Joe's associates went through. Um, but there was people that were kicked out of the gang in bad standing for having vouched for me or having befriended me. Um, and you know what? No one wants to take the lick. No one wants to take responsibility. I get that. Um, there's people who had their fingers dirty who needed someone to blame. And their argument was, I would have never done any dirt with this guy if you hadn't vouched for him. This is your fault. And so, you know, like people don't necessarily stand up and own their own actions or their own decisions. Um, they're looking for someone to pass the buck to. And if the, the buck got passed to, several members of the Hells Angels who were uh, kicked out of the gang in bad standing. Have you ever heard from any of those guys later on now that they're not part of the gang anymore? And, uh, you know, maybe they've said to you like, yeah, you saved my life, dude. I, you know, I know maybe it didn't seem like, you know, or, or any, any communication at all. Yeah, there's been, a, there's been some, I wouldn't say a lot, uh, but there's been some uh, people I've had communications with who've uh, like basically what we talked about earlier, just acknowledged what happened. Like you had a job to do. We had a job to do. You did yours in that window of time better than we did ours. So That's what were some of the going to get for me? Sometimes it's all you need, right? Well, you know what? Um, like that characterization, like on the big picture, yes, I didn't need that at all. Um, like it, it's, it's, it's a, an acknowledgement. Uh, there's some satisfaction in their acceptance of that. But like, I didn't need them to pat me on the back. I didn't need anybody from that side of the uh, of the equation to say good job to me or that I did my job well. Um, I, I wasn't looking for them to reinforce or, or, or somehow build me up for what I did. Um, it happens, it happens. When it doesn't come, I don't expect it and, and don't need it. What are some of the results of your investigation, uh, convictions, uh, interruptions? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And the, the prosecution of the case, this was a two-year infiltration. The prosecution of the case uh, did not go as, as I believed it should or as I believed it could have. Uh, the, the, the Hells Angels infiltration was codenamed Operation Black Biscuit. Black Biscuit is every bit as prosecutable today 
based on evidence, testimony, electronics, recordings, thousands of hours of, of uh, audio and video recordings. Those RICO charges are every bit as prosecutable today as they were 20 plus years ago. Um, but when the case went to the prosecutors, like we were our own worst enemy. With, with the infighting on the government side on how to present case, what evidence to deliver and how, the discovery process, the internal fighting took away from what the ultimate prosecution should have been, what was warranted by the investigation, um, because the good guys in the end couldn't get along and join forces and agree to how to move forward. Man, it's like it's like this very similar story in a lot of places, right? It's super frustrating. It was frustrating for me. Um, and like I said, I was not perfect every day. Um, I, like, like I was not some uh, uh, choir boy, angelic uh, uh, operator out there making every right decision, saying everything right every day. But after two years of a deep cover infiltration and the battle damage that you put on yourself, the battle damage I put on my family in that process and over the course of my career, when the prosecution falls short for the wrong reasons, when the prosecution falls short because of infighting, not just because your case got beat, because you got beat because you didn't prove your charges, but when it falls apart after all that blood, sweat, and tears for the wrong reason, very, very frustrating. So what were some of the results? Were there any convictions? Yeah, we had convictions. You know, people... Uh, Went to prison behind it. Um, you know, there, there was there, there was actually significant convictions behind it, but not what it should have been, not what it could have been. Um, and, and that's you know, like we like I've said earlier a couple of times, man, that's the cost of doing business. As an investigator, you don't get to go in and then argue your case before a judge and a jury either. There's portions of it that then you pass off to other people that are part of the process and they have to do their job. They have to do their part. I revealed earlier that you're going to be speaking at the street cop conference in 2024, which we're pumped to have you. What are some of the things people could expect to, uh, you know, experience when you get on stage and start talking about the topic and subject matter that you're going to talk about and what have been some of the feedback of the people who have received some of your training and, and expertise? Well, you know what, when I uh, do my stage presentation, I try to tell this story of my career and of my life. And I try to like highlight the lessons learned, good and bad. Um, and I tell it basically like, like any good stories told in three acts. There's an act one, there's an act two, and there's an act three. And I think people get most out of the act three because they expect my presentation to be a glory story. They expect it to be like an I love me presentation. And it's very much not that. Um, that act three, I talk a lot about the mistakes, the failures, my humiliations, the things I'm ashamed of, um, the mistakes I made. And then I use those events in my life that turned out bad as examples to the audience of like, man, don't do this. Don't do what I did. You don't need to reinvent the wheel, man. Just like I can tell you, if you do situation X, 
the way I did, it's going to turn out bad. Don't do that. What do you think some of your biggest frustrations with your career in law enforcement were during your 27-year career? Yeah, my, that, that's, a, that's actually an easy answer. My biggest frustrations and my biggest regrets are, are self-generated. They're, they're mine. Like, I've never been an excuse guy. I'm never looking to, like, lay blame on somebody else. I try to own my flaws and my, my failures. Um, the biggest regret, the biggest mistake I made was that the people that loved me the most, the people that supported me the hardest are the ones that I treated the shittiest. And now in hindsight, having stepped back from that career and looking at it with clearer eyes, man, some of the decisions I made, I was a bad husband. I was a bad father. I was a bad friend at times, making selfish decisions for my career, for me, for what I wanted to do. Um, man, that's, that's humiliating. It's humiliating to even make that statement here with you right now, knowing that there's people in this audience that don't know me. They're going to hear this story. And, and like, th th there's no sense of pride in that. Um, but I will say this, the, the upside from all that is that my spirituality grew. Um, I learned a couple things. I learned that if the only time you're talking to God is when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. You know, I made a million mistakes in my life and my career, but God and my wife and my kids and my friends have given me a million and one second chances to try to get it right. And so that's been my blessing. And that is what I'm grateful and appreciative of. How have you made peace with being the, in your own words, shitty father and husband? And how are the relationships now? I've, I've never made peace with that. I never intend to make peace with that. That was a huge error. Uh, on my part, the way I treated my family was a, a great regret and humiliation for me. Um, so I, like, I don't intend to make peace with it. I don't intend to forget it or pretend like it didn't happen. But I spend every day trying to, to be better for them, trying to do better for them. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like we talked about earlier, man, lessons learned. You make a mistake, you do something wrong, um, try to learn from it. Try not to keep doing that same thing over and over again. Have there been conversations between you and your family and maybe even your friends where they've expressed forgiveness for the past? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I think that I've been honest and open and transparent about my mistakes and my failures. Um, that there's been forgiveness. I, I have found that it's for us, at least for me, I, like I won't, I won't talk big picture here. I'll just talk personally. It's much easier for me to forgive other people than it has been for me to forgive myself. You know, I think that most people aren't trained in forgiveness and compassion and empathy. And, and I, I would also articulate that I'm convinced I'm I'm convinced that it's a lot of your environment that obviously prevents that thought level. Sometimes you just have to go through things yourself to get there. And one thing I've learned is as I've transformed my life as well into the person that I really every day continue to continue to try to be a better version of me.
is we are all just human beings and nobody's without flaws. There's not a day that goes by, including today, including tonight, where I don't lay my head down on the pillow and have something that I said or didn't say, something that I did or didn't do that I have regret for. Um, like I, I get something wrong every single day, even trying, even with an understanding. You know, I, I've reached out to people that, 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 that I harm and asked for their forgiveness. Um, and sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And, and I'm, just, I'm just trying to be a better person than I was, but I don't succeed every day. Man, there's days when I don't like myself, even now. And, you know, you just, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and thank God for another chance to try to get it right. I think if you have a moral compass, you have a really good shot of getting it right. And so some of the things that I'm a moral compass on is I never do anything to the detriment of somebody else for my own personal benefit and gain. Anything I've ever asked for or exchanged for money as a business person in street cop training, I have always been comfortable enough knowing that I've delivered way more value than what you've paid for. And so these are the moral compasses that I think about. And I always am I'm there to help others. Those are really good things to follow. If you keep those guidelines close to your heart, you will, you will have less and less days. You're going to make bad decisions, right? You just learn from those bad decisions. And I can tell you one of the most recent decisions, and it's very comical. I'll tell you about it in a second. But as long as you're following your moral compass, your likelihood of making bad calls or bad decisions, you know, they are, they are far likely less probable. Well, you know, like like someone in your position who who has notoriety, who's recognizable, who who people pass on the street and know who you are, um, and and now being off the job, um, there's a saying: it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Um, like all those things that you have, they're still inside you, um, but like you don't need to project them and put them on everybody. Um, if you need them, you can call on them. You know, it's those things that you've got to try to keep playing on repeat in your brain because life at times is going to be rough. Well, the most frustrating thing for me personally is that like I make a mistake and it's got a bad consequence and then I make them the same mistake again and it's got an equally bad consequence. And it's like, dude, how many times do you have to hit yourself in the head with a hammer before you decide you don't like it? I think the only thing you can do is forgive yourself and remind yourself that you're just human. And, uh, you know, I mean, like, carry on. Try to take the examples of those who have more years on this planet than you do and try to learn from their mistakes. And that's essentially what we stand for at this organization. Well, and, you know, we, like, like I said, in this pipe hitter community, um, man, it's, it, it's that mentality of dangerous boys go to dangerous places. So you're used to being in uh, perilous situations. Um, and and hopefully over the course of time, you 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 learn you learn resolution and you learn de-escalation and all those things that come into play that 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 we need to use just in everyday life. So I think on Keanu Reeves this morning, uh, it was just a, just a I was maybe scrolling Instagram on the shitter, and uh, it said I'm at that age in my life where if somebody says one plus one equals five, you're right. I just don't give a shit or care to argue with you. 
Well, you know, um, it's just, it's such like for your audience, man, it's, it's, it's never been harder to, to be a cop than it is today. Never been harder, ne never been more scrutinized, you know, and there's, there's men and women that every day their alarm clock goes off and they put their feet on the ground and they pour a bowl of Cheerios, Cheerios for their kids. And they have a cup of coffee with their husband or wife. And then they leave home knowing that there's no guarantee that they're going to ever see those kids or those loved ones again. And they go out on behalf of other people to confront problems. That, that, that mentality like, like gives you an edge. And, and then how do you uh, acclimate that edge into like real life, into walking down the street, into pumping gas or going to the grocery store? Um, those, are, those are hard questions to ask and to resolve, and we have to do it on a very personal level. I, uh, I'm excited to have you at the conference. It's going to be fantastic. People are really excited. And, um, you know, uh, it's a gift that you'll share some of the stuff that you've learned with the world. And I always tell people, what a sin it would be if I knew all these things that I could give you to help you. And I just decided not to share them with you. And I'm glad well, that you're you doing know, it. That, that, in essence, like going back to it is partly how I tell my story. If anybody that's been on this job for any length of time, you run out of fingers and toes telling hero stories. You, you, you run out of the ability to count how many times by only by the grace of God did you survive that day when you should have been dead. So, so I get that. And, and, and I get the, the, uh, the hero aspect of the profession. But I, I try to talk about, transparently talk about my failures and my mistakes because they're a part of it too. And I think that as an audience, we learn more from people's failures than we do from their successes. You, you could, everybody in this job can get up there and tell hero stories, but how many of them have uh, the, 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 the courage that it takes to say, hey man, let me tell you about when I got it wrong. Let me tell you about when I failed. Um, that's not the nature of our business. Our business is an, is an alpha dog business. And, you know, it, it takes, it, it took me a while to get to that point myself where I was just like, look, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to tell it honestly. There's people who might appreciate it. There's people who aren't going to like me. That's for you to decide. I'm just going to give you the facts and let you figure it out. However you feel about it is your choice. My last question is, what do you say to yourself knowing it's your last day on earth, maybe laid up somewhere 30, 40 years from now? What do you say to yourself that makes your life have been the one that you can look back on and say, I'm happy with this. Did well, a good job 30, here. Yeah, 30 years from now, I'll be 92. 40 years from now, I'll be 102. So I'm really not anticipating getting to either one of those numbers. Um, but when that day comes, if, if it, like, like I chased a false legacy for a long time, I wanted to leave this cop legacy of, of what I stood for and how I did my job and what I accomplished. 
um, that legacy is is counterfeit. That legacy is it, it 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 was never going to be what I wanted it to be. Um, if in the end, you know, on my deathbed, if my legacy is that like Jay found God and trusted God to guide his life and guide him through all those mistakes. And if Jay chose to stop doing things his way and forcing his plan and just following God's plan, like, 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 like me and God are good right now, man. We've like, you know, like I'm, whether, whether my time comes in the next five minutes or the next five years or the next 20 years, um, like I, I, I will go out at peace at this point in my life. Lots to unpack there. And I want to give people an opportunity to think about that as we conclude this episode. And just so you know, Lou Veloz is coming as well to speak at the conference. Dude, you know, as good as anybody that's ever done it. There, there's, a, there's a Mount Rushmore of amazing lawmen out there. And um, Lou deserves to have his face carved in the granite alongside some of the greats. He is a, an amazing human being. And I was on the phone with me yesterday and just said, you know, I just think the world needs more of Lou Velos and it'd be a shame if they didn't get it. Well, you know, we worked together. We had some, we did some operations together during our career and, and we've maintained our friendship um, after the fact. And um, so like, if I'm going to share a stage with, with Lou and yourself and some of those other people you're bringing in, uh, th that, that's my honor. To, to be able to participate and, and do what I can to bring something to the table for your event. Appreciate it, Jay. And we're always here for you. If anything we can do for you, you know, this is it. We're, 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 we're people you can depend on. I promise. Right on, man. God bless. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. Stay well. Stay healthy. Hey guys, check out our upcoming training at streetcop.com. Don't forget, we have 50 instructors nationally teaching a variety of topics. These are the best classes you're going to experience in your career. We make sure of it. You're going to love it. I guarantee you, you're going to be thankful that you went. Check us out at streetcop.com for all upcoming classes in your area.